0: We're on this series and in the In Touch um, is all the dates laid out of of the weeks that we're doing and we're doing two weeks on each session um, because there's so much stuff in it. We felt that it was worthwhile to take two weeks to do each, each week, if you like, rather than try to cram it all into one week. So that's, one, I guess, one of the advantages of of that is is being able to sort of stop one week and then pick it up the next week, which is where we got to. And uh, so, welcome to Forty Days in the Word, uh, Inspiration Point One. Why can I trust the Bible? Part One, Number B, because you can say Number B if you have bad grammar. Uh, but a little bit of a recap on last week. Okay, basically, 2 Timothy 3 says this All scriptures is God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Psalm 119, it says in the psalm All of your commands can be trusted. And this is kind of where we started last week. We started to go into. It's easy to say that, um, you know, and and that the Bible actually argues within itself for itself, which is kind of an interesting thing. You can make all claim kinds of claims about yourself, but uh, how can they be substantiated? And so uh, we look into the what we would call the Word of God to find how it would substantiate. That big claim that the Bible, as we have it today, is the very Word of god it 's a huge claim to go on and say that the Bible can be trusted absolutely now it doesn 't for the purposes of this journey it in a sense almost doesn 't matter whether you 're one who sees that the Bible is the Word of God. and I remember in some theological studies the the theology lecturer challenged us as students to to say so what do you what do you think do you think that the Bible is the Word of God or does it contain the Word of God oh now that's an interesting one because you know sometimes there are books that are a bit disputed should that be in the Bible or not um, there are some that have books that we don't have and and, and there's this little bit of confusion even within the body of Christ. That's an interesting thought. Hmm. Is it the word of God or does it have the word of God in it? Which of course picks up a little bit on that video that Terry, Terry showed us earlier about, well, you can pick and choose, I guess, You know which bits of the Bible you will take. I had a, had a friend uh, back when I first started in, in the recording business that I used to work with and he came from a kind of a, a Christian spin where um, you could trust the words of Jesus, you, you know so I said so it 's in those red letter bibles it 's the words in red, which are kind of interesting in itself anyway, because who was there writing that down the red bits at the time you, you know there 's all kinds of things that came out with it, and I kind of and I, I felt well that that 's not a really big, solid foundation, is it just the bits that are in red in this whole big Bible so interesting to think about. The first point that we made about how can I know really that this is the Word of God and that it is trustworthy is I can trust the Bible because it is historically accurate. And last week we went in to look at that and one of the things to come out of it was that archaeology, as there are more discoveries in archaeology, it bears out what has been written in the narrative in the Bible. The, the classic case that was brought out by Pastor Tom from Rick Warren's Church Saddleback and Pastor Tom will say something again to us today um, is is that the Hittites apparently were a mob that we see in the Old Testament quite a lot but there was no historical, extra, extra-biblical or outside of the Bible kind of evidence that the Hittites ever existed. But But in recent times they actually discovered that the Hittites in fact through diggings and things they found the remains of quite a big Hittite civilization, and, uh, and this seems to be the pattern that as, as we discover more archaeologically it reinforces what the Bible has said. So it's, it's a pretty powerful argument that whatever we come up with just kind of sits with it. And then the second point was that it, it is also scientifically accurate and last week we looked at verses and, and I mentioned that I'm more comfortable normally speaking from within the context of a passage. If you want to highlight a verse, it's really easy to pick out verses here and there and use them to substantiate your point of view. However, so it's it's usually considered wise scholarship to, to look at it within its context, uh, within how it appears in the Bible and what the culture of the time was and all of these kinds of things to... to come to a place where we feel pretty certain that what we're declaring is the word of God is actually his word to us. But last week wasn't much like that in a sense. There were all these verses and and during the week I thought, you know what it is? It's biblical bling. Biblical bling. These little verses that are peppered throughout scripture that are saying things that didn't actually perhaps mean a lot, maybe even cause people back in the day when they were written to to scratch their heads a bit and say, what could that possibly mean? They're they're not necessarily um, scientific dissertations. However, we declare that the Bible is scientifically accurate. So one of these biblical blings, if you like, was 2,600 years ago. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. And, and there's this little kind of bit of bling moment in there. God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. What could that possibly have meant to them back then when they lived in a world where everybody knew the world was flat? It kind of makes sense to us today. It, it took years before they discovered that the world was round as centuries pass, when this was written, but here is a little kind of a thing about the, the world being a sphere, a ball, a globe. And then, for thousands of years, people believed that the Earth had to be held up for, by something. So it's a flat, flat Earth, and it had to be held up, and it was either the giant Atlas, you might remember the big giant Atlas and had the, the world on his shoulders, or there was the the, the other primary thing through most of human history was held on top of four giant elephants and then there was the, the Egyptian perspective and, and people in that kind of region talked about the five pillars and we commented that Moses was raised with the, the elite Egyptian scholarship as, as a, a grandson of Pharaoh and he lived in a world where The world was considered flat and it was held up by five pillars yet nothing of that is ever mentioned in any of his writings. He wrote the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are all credited to Moses. None of this oldy-worldy kind of scientific outlook, flat earth policy if you like, came into any of his writings. And there's this verse... From Job. Thousands of people believed that this, this was the way that the planet, or the, it wasn't a planet, but the, the earth was held up. And apparently, Job, in the Bible, that book in Job, and look at what it says God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. What an amazing thing. Now, Job is considered the oldest existing literature in all of human history. In terms of the chronology of writing the Bible, it was actually written before Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The book of Job is considered not only in the Bible the oldest book but within human history the oldest book in existence and there's this verse. and I guess we would have thought, well that's lovely and poetic However, in this day and age, it says something much more to us, a little bit of bling, a little bit of sparkle about the truth of God embedding itself in his inspired word. Wow, who would have thought I, I, I was kind of keen on the elephant 's thing because if, if it was on the, if the, the earth was on the elephants, that explained why you had earthquakes because they, you know, they got unsettled every now and then. So I kind of... But no, not, not held on anything. It's held on nothing. Wow, what a dumb idea is that? Who thought that up? During the Middle Ages, so we're crossing over now from last week into this week. And during the Middle Ages, a bubonic plague called the Black Death uh, swept through Europe and it killed 25 million people. That was a quarter of the population. We didn't back then understand germs. We didn't understand what being contagious was. We had no idea about this contagious thing. We didn't understand about infection. We didn't understand about quarantining people. So the sick and the healthy were sleeping side by side each other. Crazy, isn't it, when you think of it today? And what started as an epidemic became a pandemic, which is a global epidemic and it took out a quarter of the population of, of Europe and around. Before we even knew what a contagion was, the Bible was prescribing how to deal with illness and infection. And if you go to the Old Testament, you'd find in there, probably in Leviticus or something like that, um, you put them outside the camp. Actually, I think this was not Leviticus. You put them outside the camp. Yes, there's the verse. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. See? The word of God's always right there, isn't it? Um, Put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. Back in Leviticus, Moses wrote that. Isn't that amazing? Now, you look at different translations, they use different words. They usually talk about not quarantine as such. That might be a more modern understanding, but put them outside the camp. And you put them outside the camp for seven days. Before we knew about infection, before we knew about being contagious, you put them. if somebody is sick with an illness, you put them outside the camp for seven days and if they're still sick, you keep them out there for another seven days and then if they're still sick, you shoot them. No, no, sorry. Uh, no, that, that you didn't. Um, that's just a little addition from me because I'm a fairly judging kind of person and impatient with people who don't get well. I'm a great patient too, by the way, just ask Bev. <laughs> <laughs> nobody understood quarantine because nobody understood germs but God knew about these things. And there are other, other issues if you look at some of that journey of the people of Israel through Exodus and stuff and you look at some of the laws, the clean, cleanliness laws, the food laws, some of the other laws, uh, even circumcision comes into it for me, is, is the, the way that God established some religious observations some practical observations. He didn't kind of say this is because of, he just said thou shalt and the people of Israel lived according to his laws and it got them through the desert in 40 years into the promised land. It became ways of keeping them well and healthy along the way. You know, kind of made a little bit of practical sense as well. The Bible is always scientifically accurate. In fact, it's actually ahead of science What was that quote we had from last week? One bloke said that that science is actually a way of discovering or enunciating God's thoughts or something to that effect. Hmm. The Bible says in Proverbs, every word of God is flawless. My words aren't flawless. Your words aren't flawless. Tony Abbott's aren't flawless. All Billy Shorten at his big thing this weekend. His words aren't flawless. President President Obama's ain't flawless. I've used bad English there. Still after all these years though, neither are Prince Philip's words. He seems to have a way still after all these years and all his professionalism and expertise, putting his foot in his mouth and saying the most amazing things. Paul is but there you go. All, our, all us as women have many serious crosses to bear and burdens to bear with our men, don't we? And as you're getting to know me, you guys here at Monty, you're becoming painfully aware that I process verbally. Yeah. I'm wordy. I'm very wordy. I'm wordy to a fault, I reckon. Uh, verbose is the word. And it 's bugged me most of my life. I, I will always thank my pastor of the church that we came to in Melbourne. He was one of the guys he, he was really probably the only guy to put that on me and say, "You talk too much, Dave." you know and and even years and years later he's now re- actually he 's now with the Lord just recently didn 't he? Um, I would still i 'd email him and say, "Yeah, I've still got that problem." It takes me four sentences to say one. I did find, though, when I tried to be succinct, I would come over harsh, particularly in emails. Don't you love written communication? It's cheap fish and chips kind of communication these days. It's easy to... My life is full of half conversations and interrupted dialogue. That's how I live my life. You know, We must catch up with that thing. And, and I try to be succinct and I can give the impression I'm being sharp or harsh. So I go, look Dave, just be wordy, just unpack it, make it their problem. (laughs) (laughs) But the Bible, verbose, it isn't. The Bible is not verbose. Everything in the Bible is on purpose. And that's an interesting thing to think about because if you look at some of Paul's, the apostle's writings in his letters. Sometimes his argument seems cyclic and he keeps saying the same thing again. Have, you, you, you know, and but yet when you step back and think, well hang on a minute, because here's this verse in Psalm twelve. It says The words of the Lord are flawless, which was what that other verse said. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, we're getting there with you on that. Yeah, we think it the words of of the Lord are flawless. Like but gives on to say this like silver refined in a furnace of clay and purified seven times. Well, okay, they're using the magic seven, so it's obviously biblical, it's obviously God's, the number seven, but it's silver, refined in a, serv- a furnace, purified seven times. If you take the idea that there is a God in heaven, that he did impart to him, uh, us an inspired word of God, then it makes logical sense to to accept that what we have today the Lord has ensured that we have it and that it is not haphazard, that it is not even kind of fragmented. It is actually not only flawless, but it's been intentionally crafted and and assembled and perfectly presented. What's the point of all those begats? You know, John begat Bill, begat Fred, begat Hank, you know, and all of that. And even though in the Old Testament there are some seven generational, they talk in multiples of seven. You know, there were 14 generations from him to him. And sometimes they actually didn't tell the truth. It wasn't that way. They weren't making a literal point. They were making a theological point. The, the, the numbering in scriptures of the generations and the names that are mentioned in the generations all serve a purpose. Everything about it is on purpose. Isn't it marvellous? I can open up and a a preacher in Sydney the other night at his Sunday night service, he said, okay, now scroll to Matthew chapter (laughs) (laughs) 3. Isn't that cool? But you know, you can plug in now, today, in this day and age, and, and uh, you know, thank you Terry for the ministry you guys do. It's just so wonderful, that resource. But you can spend ten lifetimes uh, messing with the Bible, like putting stuff out, couldn't you? We, we can never get to the end of it. We can, at a push of a button now, we can have all the different versions lined up beside each other. It's just the most wonderful thing. And And people who have no even feeling for God, don't even believe in God, have read the Bible for a self-help book and it has helped them. There's been a wonderful pattern for living. More often than not it seems it's led them to faith in Christ as well, such as the power of this divine living thing called the Bible. It doesn't spend time expounding scientific facts but it does fill itself with the sometimes simple, often complex but always timeless truths of the Lord God Almighty, and last week we commented about the fact that facts change, but truth never does. So then we go on, and we say we know we can trust the Bible because it was it is prophetically accurate. So what does that mean? It means that the predictions in the Bible always come true. The Bible is filled with literally thousands of prophecies with more than 300 prophecies about Jesus alone. Over a thousand year period uh, these 300 prophecies indicated things like where Jesus would be born, when uh, when he would be born and how he'd die. Here are a few of the prophecies relating to Christ's crucifixion and just Google it and you'll get a fairly comprehensive list. Relating to Christ's crucifixion, remembering when these Old Testament prophecies concerning him were put together, crucifixion wasn't even invented. The Romans hadn't even been invented. Uh, Jesus was betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was accused by false witnesses and he was severely bashed and spat upon. The clothes he was wearing were taken away from him and gambled for. Now we know that the norm was that the, the guards would take all the clothes. Uh, and they would distribute them. When they got to his seamless coat though, they said, oh, we, we won't tear that up between us, we'll gamble for it. So he- not only was it prophesied that his clothes would be distributed, which was standard operation in crucifixion, apparently, but that there's this other little extra, this non-standard thing called, well, we'll gamble for his coat because that's, um, that's a bit special. His hands and feet were pierced His side was pierced, but no bones were broken. He might have been out of joint because of the crucifixion process of being hung, but then no bones were broken. And once again, that was a non-standard process. If you read the narratives in the end of each of the four Gospels, which take up a quarter of the New Testament, the four Gospels just alone, that... um, it was standard practice to, because they were coming into the Sabbath and they didn't want people on the cross during the Sabbath, they would go and break the legs of the crucified people to speed up the dying process because you died of suffocation, because you're hung with the ribcage sticking into your lungs and, and it took hours and hours and hours for dying and the only way you could catch a breath was to push up on your feet, which were nailed, grab a breath and hang back down on your arms, which were nailed. And so this process of very, very slow suffocation and eventually you get too weak to push up again and you die. Very, very painful. Whoever dreamt that up, unbelievable. Um, and So they prophesied that which was yet to be invented but they also went one extra step and said, oh but by the way, Jesus the Messiah, the prophesied one, no, no legs will be broken. So he was crucified on the Sabbath, on the eve of the Sabbath. When they came to him, if you read the narrative, they saw that he was already dead. However, somebody, one of the guards, decided that they were, he would spear him in the side, and the narrative talks about out flowed blood and water. Now, this is signifying he was already dead. Um, so, all these extras, you just can't kind of get to the end of this, this peppering in Scripture of the authoritative Word of God. Yes, you might dream up a thing called crucifixion, but how did you dream up a bit about the fact that he alone, if you like, was an exception to the rule, no broken bones? And he alone would be speared in the side, which was also something that wasn't normal in the process, yet the Bible, and in this case in the Old Testament, was talking about these very things. There was darkness over the land, that is prophesied, and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. That was prophesied. What are the odds of making just three of those come together? What are the odds? Apparently the number, if you were to do an odds on on the Bible prefaces, you wouldn't actually be able to write the number down. It is just too huge to write it down. It's actually more reasonable, if you think about it without being biased, it's actually more reasonable to believe the Bible (coughs) and the Bible prophecies and to believe that they were given by a God who knew all things than to insist that it was just kind of a coincidence. It, it's really, really hard to sustain that position with any kind of reasonable logic, which has serious implications for us, doesn't it, if we want to discount it in some way. The Bible says in Second Peter, No prophecy ever originated from humans, Instead it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. In Bible times a prophet had to be 100% correct. If you're one of God's prophets you had to be 100% correct or you'd be put to death as a false prophet. Nobody wanted to be a prophet. You only had to get it wrong once. These days there are plenty of people claiming to be prophets. TV Loves, the media loves to invite these mediums and spirit guides and astrologers and physics, sorry, psychics. I always have trouble reading ph- psychics and saying physics. Psychics. All imperfect, all false. We give them huge airtime. Jesus declared in Matthew 26. But this is all happening to fulfil the words of the prophets as recorded in scriptures. Revelation 22 says this. John said, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and they're true. As the the inspired word is drawing to a close in, in Revelation 22 and the final words are being said and John Seeing in his vision, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So we know the Bible is historically accurate. We know the Bible is scientifically accurate and the Bible is prophetically accurate. And so the fourth reason the Bible is trustworthy is that it is thematically unified. Its theme or themes in the Bible are unified. So what's the big deal? There are lots of books like that that have a unified theme from beginning to end, but as that's true, that's true. But if you look, say, at the religious scriptures and the religious writings, the Analects of Confucius were written by Confucius. Um, the Quran was written by one person, Muhammad. The writings of Buddha was also written by, yep, Buddha. So you'd kind of expect that in a way they would be kind of unified, one one author in those books. However, this is where the Bible kind of stands out. It, it has a kind of a mystical, for me, a mystical unity. It's outside of its material self. Now, let me just, um, I'm going to try to use this technology. Boink. And then one more. Ha ha. Oh, this is for the geeks. Do you remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Back the, George Lucas, he's really enamoured by religious themes, and I'd love to think he'd, he'd break through and have. No, you probably weren't even born, you guys. I'm talking to us older ones, okay? This was a really cool film. But, and the technology was unbelievable. You know, and people who want to believe in aliens, you really want to believe in this kind of film. It's fantastic. But what, what was going on in that film was that this guy, Richard Dreyfus, can you imagine him looking that young, but he um, he started getting an impression of a, a mountain and it was in his head and he, he had to try to kind of, he started making it out of mashed potato and then he started building one out of mud, you know, like a pottery thing and then you see what he winds up with on the other side there, this huge, fills his living room with this model of this thing that is so Driving him and and then, as the story unfolds, and they, they discover um, yeah, apparently you can go and visit that thing. Is it called devil 's rock or something? There is a real thing in the states that that build, that mountain with the flat top. However, it was this mysterious location somewhere uh, that was drawing people together to it, and all the, he found all these other people had the same pictures they were painting pictures of this rock, so it was outside of them there was this mystical element what what were they seeing in their mind 's eye, and what was driving them together to go and try to find this place and as you, As you know, if you remember the story of the film they, they came across it and and that was where the aliens then appeared with all their majesty and their bright flashing lights and stuff like that it was pretty cool you know um, from from that point of view now what, Why have I bothered with that I, I guess the thing about it was. Um, and it's not biblically sound, by the way, that story, just in case you were thinking. Um, but but that sense in which... Uh, what, where was the commonality of thinking? What was it that drew the, the biblical writers to come up with such common elements... Um, I'll just see if we can go on to the next one. You can probably move on from that now mate, thank you. Um, This mystical unity for me is is an idea that is kind of um, grabbing my my thinking a bit. The Bible was written by 40 different authors in every age and stage of life. On three different continents, three different languages, over 1,600 years. It was written in homes, on ships, written in a cave, in prison and in palaces, written by poets and prophets, princes and kings, sailors and soldiers, lawyers and prisoners, a doctor and just plain ordinary people all had a hand in this thing that we call the inspired word of God today. It was all outside themselves in a sense. Why was it? It could have just been a compilation uh, book. Well, let's have all these ideas. You know, let's get forty people, forty authors. Let's get forty people in a room together and say, "Tell us about God. Give me a story about God." And what are the chances are that any of them would actually agree with each other in the same room, in the same time frame? Yet here, there's a common theme through the entire book, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation and it's a theme of redemption and Jesus is the star. The reason, one of the other things is it's one thing to get them all to agree or to kind of synergise, to get, you know, there's simpatico, there's sympathy, there's, um, it's, it's not like collusion because they didn't know each other. But the other thing is where does the concept of when you're talking about a God, Love, forgiveness, mercy. Where do those kinds of thoughts come from? If you were going to sit down and write a story about God, would you think that up? You know, our human concepts of God are big bad gods that you've got to appease, you know, offer sacrifices to. They, they, they can be vindictive. In some faiths, like other faiths, you have no guarantees with their God that you'll be taken into whatever nirvana or whatever else it might be. The reason the Bible sounds like it was written by one author is because it was. Because it was. Jesus said in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so the first five books of the Bible, Moses and the prophets, which is most of the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus explained to them his disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. There's no New Testament. They only had the Hebrew scriptures which is what we would have as our Old Testament. And from that Jesus showed his disciples how those scriptures talked about himself. Talk about a master class. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to sat at the foot of Jesus and listen to him unpack the Old Testament concerning himself. Man, that would almost be worth going back to those times for. I'm not sure I could go with the togas and the sandals but wouldn't that be unbelievable? Jesus giving you a masterclass on the Bible and how it talks about himself in just about all of the pages. The stories, the pictures, the metaphors, the analogies, the illustrations. The Bible is about God's plan to redeem humanity and build a family for eternity. And the hero of the story is Jesus and you can see him even if partially veiled in every book. John 5.39 says, You search the scriptures because you believe they give you eternal life, Jesus is speaking, but the scriptures point to me. And while we're talking about Jesus, Pastor Tom is going to come and talk for a few minutes to you about the fifth way that we'll know that we can trust the Bible is the Word of God. Thanks, guys.
1: Fifth way I know I can trust the Bible is because it's confirmed by Jesus. Because Jesus trusted the Bible. You may have heard somebody say, you may have even thought... You know, I trust what Jesus said. I'm just not sure about those other guys. Well, here's the challenge to that. Jesus trusted the rest of the Bible. So if I trust Jesus, then i got to trust the rest of the Bible because Jesus trusted the rest of the Bible. Jesus proclaimed the Bible as a unique book above all others. Look at this next verse in your outline. Matthew 5:18. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus looks at the Bible and says, it's going to last until the end of the time. It's going to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in this world. Here's what Jesus had to say about it up on the screen. John ten thirty five. Jesus said, let's read this one together. Jesus said, Scripture is always true. Jesus proclaimed the truth of the Bible. And when Jesus talked about the truth of the Bible, I've got to listen to that in my own life. When Jesus says that every sentence and word of the Bible is true, that's why I believe that every sentence and word of the Bible is true. When you read how Jesus talked about the Bible with people, he would often base his argument about the truth of the Bible on a single sentence or even a single word from the Bible. So he believed every single sentence, every single word. So why wouldn't I? Because I trust Jesus. And when Jesus talks about the Bible, he doesn't just talk about poetry and history. He talks about it as something that's life changing. Look at this next verse up on the screen. Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Here's what Jesus had to say. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and do what? And obey it and do it. So not just read it like poetry, oh, isn't that nice, but obey it because God wrote it to our lives. Jesus, as he talked about the Bible, he talked about it as a real book, talking about real people in real places with a real God who's really at work in our lives. Up on the screen, let me just put for you uh, just a real quick list of some of the people and places that the Bible talks about as real. And that Jesus also confirmed, as he taught, that were real. Jesus believed in the prophets. If you want to write down a couple of these verses, I'll leave that up there for a couple of seconds. He talked about all the prophets being real. He talked about Daniel being real. Jesus believed in Noah, everything that happened with the flood. He talks about that. He believed in Adam and Eve. Jesus believed in the tragedy of Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened there. He taught on that. He believed in Jonah and what happened there. Now, here's the interesting thing. Particularly those last four, Noah, Adam and Eve, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah, those are the most disputed stories in the Bible by people who say, oh, it's just a bunch of fables. And they're good stories, they're good moral stories, but they didn't really happen. Well, Jesus believed they really happened. In fact, he used some of these as illustrations of the fact that of what was going to happen in his resurrection. If Jesus really believed in Jonah, I believed in what happened. Now I, I don't know how God created a fish that could swallow a guy, but he did. He did. I trusted it because Jesus trusted in it. And it always it sort of makes me smile when two thousand or three or four thousand years later we look back at the Bible and we go, Well you know, I'm gonna trust that part and I'm not gonna trust that part. Based on my subjective or emotional feelings, I'm going to accept that part, and I'm not going to accept that part. Jesus trusted it. Jesus trusted it, and so I trust it. Augustine said, if you believe in the Bible what you like, and you don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible you trust, but yourself. And I don't know about you, I've found that my emotions, my opinions, are not always trustworthy. I trust Jesus. He trusted the Bible. That's one of the main reasons why I trust the Bible.
0: I like Pastor Tom. He's cool. The sixth reason that you can trust the Bible as the absolute authoritative word of God, that it is God-breathed, Theo, Neustos, is that it has survived all attacks. Rick Warren says this, I'll quote him. I've reworked what he said but I'm quoting him. The Bible is the most despised, the most derided, the most denied, the most disputed, the most dissected, debated and destroyed. The most outlawed and most banned book ever in history. People have died because they refused to give up their Bible and even today if you take a Bible into North Korea you can get arrested and thrown in jail and you can be executed for carrying it. Yet the Bible remains the most published most translated, most read book on the, on the planet. Throughout history, the Bible continues to be the greatest single source of music. It is the greatest single source of art and the greatest single source of architecture. The Bible is still the best-selling book in global history. Fairly amazing, really. And it is still changing people's lives. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The word of God is eternal because truth lasts forever. There's a guy called Voltaire uh, that Rick Warren uses as an illustration. He was a famous French philosopher and he was a brilliant man. However, he was an atheist and he wrote a number of tracts uh, deriding the bible voltaire made a very famous statement in which he said 100 years from today the bible will be a forgotten book 100 years from today a bible the bible will be a forgotten book after voltaire died for nearly 100 years his homestead was used as the book depository for the french bible society <laughs> One on Voltaire. Uh, They sold Bibles out of his house, and these days it's a museum. His old house. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Uh, Just, just on on a tangent. You you know, when you see the humanity, don't. Wouldn't you love to be? It wouldn't make you look like you're sucking lemons if you were remembered throughout all of human history for a mistake you made or something. There's Voltaire. But you know, the guys in the Bible, you know, the disciples, you know, the Bible shows them warts and all. They're our heroes today. But there they are being really, really human. If you're sitting down and you're looking back and don't forget that most of the the Gospels didn't start getting put put down until they're almost all dying off and they realise the Lord's not coming back in our lifetime, we better note something down. They're writing history back on their own lives and there it all is. All their mistakes, all their human frailties, all their, their, their rejection of Jesus when he was being arrested, warts and all, it's all there. Now who's going to do that if you're writing in your own heart, in your own thoughts, in your own intent? The humanity that's in the Bible the heroes that we have today where we're seeing their fallenness, for me is a really, really powerful truth of its reality and its inspired origins. First Peter 1 says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. Truth will always be the truth, whether you, me, Voltaire, believe it or not. Now there's a guy back in when I was a kid, Paul E. Little, some of us may remember him. He's a great Bible apologist a guy that would argue for the Bible and he would go around the university campuses in the States and he would talk about the Bible and why it's trustworthy and why God is real and those kinds of things. And at the end of one of his lectures, a student went up to him and said, You know, you almost made me believe today. He said to Paul, this student, he said, You know, you were so powerful in your arguments concerning God and Jesus Christ and the Bible and all of that being real. You almost made me believe. I almost became a Christian. And Paul said, Well, what's stopping you? He said, i 'll have to change my life too much, and what emerged from that and what Paul realized was that was proving God, proving the Bible is not an intellectual challenge it 's a moral one, because the implications of this all being true, what you know if bits of it are, are real, well then, and the rest of it is real, what are the implications? For us, if there is a God in heaven, somewhere bigger, somebody bigger than ourselves, someone we might actually be answerable to, no, we've got to put that away. We've got to discount him. As Christian explained, he used to say, he's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. There are no other options available to us. The implications of the Bible actually being divine truth are enormous for me as an individual, for us as humanity. It's probably fair to say that most people live their lives as though the Bible can be discounted or ignored. They prefer to believe what they want to believe. We've been hearing that resonating all morning. Thank you, Terry, for finding that unbelievably difficult video to keep up with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the wrong end of the generation swing, man. I mean, that was unbelievable, wasn't it? But so powerful and so in sync with where we're at today and and Terry and I hadn't colluded on that. It was really cool. Um, it's kind of like what Rick says here and I'll, I'll use a, a, a building here. He says, throwing yourself off the Empire State Building. I'll say, choosing not to believe in the law of gravity is like throwing yourself off the, the Rialto Building and halfway down thinking to yourself, so far so good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Uh, My physics teacher back in high school when we used to talk about these things, he he said to me, Dave, you know, um, I don't believe that if I genuinely and honestly decided that I couldn't believe in God, which was his perspective, that was my physics teacher's perspective, was that he just couldn't believe that there was a God. He also went one step further and said, I can't believe that if i honestly and genuinely determine that i cannot believe in god that he would then condemn me for it yeah it's it's quite good logic isn't it just a little bit kind of false reasoning as to where you wind up but but there you go this is how we kind of rationalize things in our own in our own heads is, is to come to terms with what we've sometimes talked about, haven't we? The God-shaped vacuum in our lives. You know, we were designed. We are a mystical creature too. We are designed for eternity. We are created, whether we are created through an evolutionary process or not. And don't I, I prefer to kind of hang with the biblical understanding of it? There. However, um, one thing I do know: whatever you might believe about how we arrived, is that God initiated us. In His own image, we were a separate thing. We were not just developed as part of the animal and plant life. We came into being in His image, and therefore, I believe that it's in our spirit that we resonate with His Holy Spirit when He works in our lives to draw Him to Himself. We do not operate out of out of um, animal kind of behaviour, instinct, and that kind of thing. We are a different being altogether. So we can reason things like we do. Now number seven, the Bible has transforming power and this is really the kicker. This is the thing that perhaps when we think about it maybe declares the truth of God more powerfully than anything else. Law and laws can do little if anything to fix the really great problems in the world. Laws can only go so far to change human behaviour. Because laws can't change a human heart. You can outlaw racism and bigotry but no law is going to turn a bigot into a lover. You can outlaw abuse but who's going to change their behaviour if they think they can get away with it? More law and more laws and more regulations and more rules only drives more and more sin underground. Nothing can change lives like the Bible can, and people who are bound by sinful behavior, they can be released. Ugly, angry people can be made calm. War- warring marriages can be made loving again. Tens of thousands, actually millions, of lives have been changed. One of my life um, commands, or in my personal mission statement, is has been people saved and i 'm using jargon there. people saved and set free through Jesus Christ, set free through Jesus Christ. Secular universities all around the world have the second half of a Bible verse printed on in stone on their buildings. It says, "The truth will make you free. Has anybody ever been to a university and seen that engraved somewhere it 's all over the place. The truth will make you free. Problem with that is they've forgotten the front of of the verse. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 8, "If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free." Because this book never lies to you, even when I don't like what it says, even when I disagree with it, even when it hurts, even when it's uncomfortable, it will always tell me the truth. And that's why it's called the Holy Bible. Do you believe everything you read online? Nope. Do you believe everything you're told by the self-appointed media messiahs on tally? Definitely not. A fundamental question that everybody asks, whether they realise they're asking it or not, and we're drawing our thoughts to a close on this, is what is going to be the final authority for my life? We will have a final authority in our life whether we think we do or not. Does public opinion rule my life? Facebook popularity reigns supreme in my life. Political correctness can be a slippery slope but many people steadfastly attach themselves to whatever current attitudes, thinking and beliefs are dished up to them by their media, movie and music heroes. The Bible says in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, the world's opinions, attitudes, way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Rick says you're either conformed to the way the world thinks or you're transformed by the truth. Then you'll be able to test, you'll be able to know and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will that's how we get to make really good decisions in life build our life on that kind of a verse from Romans 12 God's plan for my life is good God's plan for my life is pleasing but we're only going to know it through the perfect word of God let's pray dear heavenly father we <clears throat> we bow before you now in these moments and we've sat listening to an exposition or an expounding of your word in some ways, but in many ways an apologetic for your word. And it is wonderful to be able to look in to these things and to, for some of it it's very familiar to us and yet... In in other ways it's come fresh to us today. We don't have blind guides leading us. Your word speaks with authority like Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount where they said of him he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He spoke not as the religious intelligentsia of the day or the power holders or the influences of the day. He spoke as one who had authority. And we would pray, Lord, that the authority that comes from abiding in your word, both the written and the living word, would rest on each of us. We pray, Lord, that as we make serious decisions in life, that we'd allow the undergirding strength and wisdom of your word to guide us that our responsiveness to your holy spirit drawing your word out from what that which we have stored up in our hearts would increase that we would become increasingly sensitive to the nudges that you give us to to point us in the right kind of directions to help us to make wise decisions even when we have no idea what the outcome may be but you do we are, we are so thankful lord that you have actually invited us, welcomed us into this kind of life where we can live submitted under your truth. And even when the world scratches its heads and derides us and laughs at us and, and, and points at all the, 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 the stupid things that they think that we might believe or subscribe to, Lord, the folly is not on us. And it's not an arrogance, Lord. It's like Terry said earlier, being able to love and embrace and know your word is not for building us up in pride. We we would come humbly to our people, Lord, and and say, please consider. Please please look seriously for yourselves into what we have to, to offer you, to show to you. Our heart's desire is that you would know Jesus like we do. And so, Lord... Thank you for the confidence that we gain from looking at this and understanding that, that the word of God, that, that precious that we can have for each one of us is, is a lifelong companion. It has divine implications and it has power to genuinely and completely transform our lives, whoever we may be, we, wherever we may, may find ourselves it is because it is your word to us and it brings us life we commit ourselves to you, Lord to this purpose of being your faithful people your authentic people a people on which your word rests and your authority rests that we may proclaim your word in all its ways in our life in our thinking in our saying in our doing and in our pre- preaching to the world around us. May our life be a testimony to the reality of your word alive in this world we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.